All right, we're continuing on through the book of Genesis. Today, we're going to do a rather large uh, chunk of it. We're going to do the entire Abrahamic narrative, uh, which stems really from the latter part of 11 all the way to 2518. But we're going to just do 12 through 2518. And so let's now begin in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you so much uh, that we are able to witness your work uh, in the beginning uh, even though we were not there, as you, you record it and tell it to us, as we are able to see you continue to create the world, but now through a people that you've chosen to do uh, this through a microcosm and ultimately leading up to your son. And so we, we see the beauty of this in the beginning. There's a lot of nervousness about it. There's a lot of threats about it. And yet it's, again, teaching us a particular theology about you. Um, it, it's calling us to respond in a, t- a particular ethic toward you, and it's just causing us to magnify you in terms of the great work that you are accomplishing. And so we thank you once again that we're able to see this. Help us understand this. Uh, let us not merely read this as just some story, but rather understand the foundations of your historical salvific work with your people the foundations of theology that are in it, and the foundations of our ethics in responding to you. They're all here as they are in the book of Genesis, and they continue on through these patriarchal narratives. We thank you so much for all these things and ask now that we might glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as I said, we're going to go through quite a bit. We're not obviously going to read all these chapters. That's for you to do. What I, my purpose is to explain the point of these chapters to you, uh, why they are said here, what's going on, and, uh, and ultimately what we are to learn from it, how they contribute to the larger message of Genesis, the larger foundations that it's setting for the rest of the Bible. So, of course, we, we've left now the uh, primeval history that communicated to us that the world has fallen into darkness and in sin, chaos has taken over. There are some people who are still living for God, but there's a huge amount of people who are not. And the reason why they're not is not merely because of environmental conditions, if the world was better, if we had better politics, if we had better this or that, but because man is corrupt internally. Um, just to note another uh, book that just came out. I have not gotten a chance to read this yet, but he is also making the argument against a lot of scholars who will try to say, well, Genesis doesn't talk about original sin. He's going to argue for uh, original sin as well. Um, again, I've not read it. I don't know what his argument would be, but I certainly would argue that Genesis teaches original sin, not just for theological reasons, obviously, but because drawing from the narrative itself, uh, as well as the cultural understanding of federal headship, that it certainly does. So the world has fallen into sin. God cannot destroy the world because his point is to fill up the world with his covenant people. And so he does this with the flood to show us that, well, you know, that's not really the answer. And yet we're left with, okay, well, he's not going to destroy us again with the flood because he wants to fill up the earth with his covenant people And yet he needs to rid the world of chaos because he's creating the world. What in the world is he going to do? And suddenly he turns to this man named Abram. And he makes a covenant with Abram. And you're kind of like, well, okay, what's going on? 
Well, as we read here, we'll see what's going on and what God purposes to do. So starting in chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go out from the country, your relatives and your father's household, to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who curses you I will curse, so that all the families of the land may be blessed because of you. So Abram left just as the Lord had told him to do, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they left for the land of Canaan. They entered the land of Canaan. Abram traveled through the land as far as the oak tree of Moreh at Shechem. At the time, or sorry, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he moved from there to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and worshipped the Lord. Abram continually journeyed uh, by stages down to the Negev. Now, <clears throat> this is important to note. Abraham, Abram here, uh, is being told that God is going to basically do what with him? I'm going to bless you. Now, what? where does the idea of blessing, where do we see that? Uh, earlier in Genesis, well, in chapter one, he blessed them. How did he bless him? Them, he said, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth." So he blessed them by allowing them to partake in his creational work by uh, filling up the earth with human images. That's how he blessed them. If you note in Genesis, that's how blessing usually is. It's going to be that God is allowing you to participate in creation. When God prevents you from having children, when God prevents you from this, in Genesis, again, I'm not talking about in general, in Genesis, it's blessing or cursing. It's cursing if he's, he's preventing it. Blessing, then, is making Abraham fruitful. So that's what the promise is going to be. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, how is he going to make him into a great nation? Well, we don't really know yet, but obviously, in order to do that, Abraham would have to have children. And so he's going to bless him in terms of children. I want you to notice what he says. He's going to make his name great. This is in contrast to the Tower of Babel, who they wanted to make a name for themselves. So same thing. They want to make a name for themselves, but God is going to make a name for Abram, not for these guys. And how will he make a name? How will he, he allow, they're, they're making a name means they're going to conquer the world. How is Abram going to conquer the world? Well, by being God's image, subjected to God and filling up the earth. And so, in other words, God is going to make him fruitful so that he multiplies. And then it says to his descendants, he's going to give the land, the Eretz, which remember the land and the earth, you can read either way. And then all the families, all the, the Mishpaha, the, the clans of the Adamah, the land. So it's not, it's not all, everybody in the earth. This is a smaller covenant at first. It's, it's kind of the, this is almost like a bare minimum covenant. It's going to be expanded as we go throughout. 
But right now, it's just the families of the land will be blessed by Abraham's presence. And, uh, and of course, eventually his descendants' presence. But I want you to notice what God is promising then. God's not promising something new and different. He's simply saying, the creation that I was going to give to man in general, I now give to you. The role that I was going to give to man in general of the image, I now give to you and to your descendants. So I am not blessing all mankind to be fruitful and multiply and to make covenant images. The rest of mankind isn't even going to know Yahweh. So they can't make covenant images to fill up the earth. They can make human beings, but they can't make covenant images, covenant uh, children. And so the blessing is, I'm going to take you and your descendants and you are going to be my images. You're going to fulfill the role that other men are not fulfilling. And through you then... And eventually he's going to say, through your seed, uh, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Here it's the families, the, the clans of the land, but eventually it gets expanded into all the, the nations of the world, all the nations of the earth, the Eretz. And so I, I want you to notice that God then is not just deciding, well, I guess none of that worked out. I'm going to start something new. He's not starting anything new. He's actually just saying, I'm going to complete what I originally set out to do, but now I'm going to do it through you. And this is the way we're going to overcome chaos. Not for me sending a flood and destroying all the humans, but rather by blessing you, I'm going to bless the world and ultimately create and save the world. And we find that out by the end of the book, of course, that it's, it's through these things that God uh, will uh, save many lives. So as we go on, what's very interesting is that we're going to get God repeating this command, confirming and reconfirming this covenant with Abraham. And each time he does, he almost expands it uh, to where you start seeing more of the detail of what God is promising Abram. So right now it just looks like, yeah, I'll make you into a great nation and, and other people will be blessed through you and I'll give your descendants this land. It's like, okay, well, that's good. But then as we go on, it's going to be things like, well, and I'm going to be, I'm basically going to protect you and I'm going to give you all these riches and rewards and all this inheritance. And then you see that, well, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land and the land is going to be from these borders and these borders and it's more specific. And ultimately your seed will be blessing for the entire world. So this is a great promise he's promising to Abraham. And we see here then the foundations of the historic redemptive theme in the Bible. That is, uh, God is going to redeem the world and he's going to complete his work of creation through Abraham. And ultimately then through, as we know, Israel. And ultimately from Israel, the true Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic King. Now, as he uh, confirms and reconfirms these things, we're going to bump into a series of threats, a series of chaos that are going to rear their heads that threaten what God has promised. So God has promised he's going to make Abram into a great nation. Very next scene that happens here, uh, we'll go ahead and read it. This is a scene that kind of happens twice in different, situa in different uh, locations. But in verse 10, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay for a while because the famine was severe. As he approached Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, 
Look, I know that you are a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will keep you alive. So tell them you are my sister so that it may go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on account of you. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So Abram's wife was taken into the household of Pharaoh. And he did treat Abraham well on account of her. Abraham received, or Abram received sheep and cattle, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe diseases because of Sarai, <clears throat> Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave his men orders about Abram, and so they expelled him along with his wife and his possessions. Now I want you to notice in this first chaotic scene, Abram creates the chaos by thinking, you know what, I should probably control chaos by figuring out a means of avoiding it. And here you see that he actually creates more of it. He creates a threat now because in reality, we know that ultimately Abraham will be made a mighty nation, specifically Israel, through Isaac, which is going to come through Sarah. Well, now that's all threatened because Sarah now belongs to another man at this point, Pharaoh. And so Abraham has created this situation where he may not receive the covenant in the very act of trying to receive the covenant through what he's doing, trying to secure this, the covenant himself. And so, but what we see here instead is that because God is involved, the chaos that Abram creates is turned into blessing so that God does good and creates through it. So he brings about the promise he gives to Abraham a little bit and a little bit through each of these threats that frankly... Sometimes they're created by God, sometimes they're created by circumstance, and sometimes they're created by the actual people who are doing chaos in the world. So what does he do with Abraham here? Well, he actually starts to give him riches. So it says that Abraham received sheep and cattle and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So he's receiving all this stuff through the very chaos that he created so that God is bringing about the promise not just through when things go well, but also when chaos comes about and even when we create that chaos. Here, Abraham's creating the chaos. God's still working and creating good through him, bringing about his promise, his covenant to Abraham. Now, of course, uh, Abraham takes Sarai back and everything, and there's another threat. There's quarrels between Abram's herd, herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen to where it doesn't look like they're going to be able to live in the land, like the land can't support both of them. So here we have another threat, another thing of chaos, because God just said to Abram, I'm going to give you this land. Well, he can't be supported by the land, so it's a problem. So what's the solution? Well, notice, instead of making a solution like Atrahasis and saying, well, you guys just need to reduce your number. Stop having so many kids. That's not the solution. The solution is lot. There's land out there to get. You take what land you want. I'll take what land I want. Of course, lot decides to move out more uh, toward the uh, east, toward Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Abram uh, keeps the land basically of Canaan, which will eventually be Israel, uh, in, in terms of where he is. He doesn't own the land yet, but he's on this land. And so it, it, it moves out. And so through it, through that chaos, through that threat, God ends up giving Abram the land in terms of, well, he's going to stay on this land and eventually he's going to possess it. Lot moves out from the land. And so again, uh, you're going to see numerous accounts of these threats that come up. Then we're going to have, uh, after this, we're going to have in 14, we're going to have uh, this rebellion that takes place and the, this uh, little kind of mini uh, war that goes on where Abram has to go out. It looks like Lot is, is, is captured. Now Abram's going to war because he has familial obligations to Lot. Well, if he's going to war, how is God going to make him a great nation if he's killed? So now there's this other threat. But then Abram overcomes and he, he defeats the, uh, the foes in the war and he, he gets Lot back. What's interesting is you might think, well, God's going to give him a lot of riches because he's offered a lot of riches here in chapter 14 by defeating these, these villains, essentially. And instead he says, no, no, I don't want anyone to say that uh, you know, I was made rich by you. Uh, I want God to make me rich. And so after this, God gives him another covenant promise saying, I am going to make you rich. I'm going to reward you just exceedingly. And I'm going to be a shield to you. So even in war, I'm going to guard you. And I'm I'm just going to give you these riches. So Abraham, through this episode, ends up getting a confirmation from God, an expansion of the covenant that God is going to fulfill these promises, make him rich and guard him as well. Well, this brings us to 15. It says, uh, after these things, the Lord's message came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, the one who will reward you in a great abundance. So there's God's promises. Now, um, he tells Abram that he's now going to make an heir from his own body because Abram will say, look, uh, I don't have a kid Uh, My servant, Eliezer, is going to inherit all of my stuff. How am I going to know that you're going to actually make a child from my own? I'm going to actually inherit these things. And God says, I'm going to make someone from your own body. It's not going to be your servant. And Abraham believed him and God credited that to him as righteousness. So there we have the faith that Abraham has in God, God giving him righteousness. And then Abraham, of course, is going to continue to live in righteousness. We'll see that later. Um, but Abraham still wants God to confirm what he said. And so basically what Abraham is asking, he's saying to God, what is your, do I have any like visual promise from you? I know you've said it and I believe you, but, but how will I, you know, how do I actually know for sure this is going to happen? So God says, okay, get these animals, cut them in half. And then Abraham goes in this deep sleep and he sees God pass through these animals, and you're kind of like, what is all this? This, you know, this kind of pot passing through this furnace passing through. Um, the literal making of a covenant. When you see the phrase to make a covenant in Scripture, it it, it literally means it, it's literally saying karat barit to cut a covenant. And what occurs in the covenant making is that you cut animals apart, and the two people of the covenant walk through the animals, and it's almost as if to say. If I do not keep this covenant, may this occur to me. In other words, may I be cut in half like these animals if I do not keep this covenant. So it's just a, 
a swearing of a covenant that I am going to keep this. I'm going to do what I've said. If you notice in the vision here, Abram doesn't walk through the animals. Only God does. So that the promise that God gives to Abraham is not reliant upon Abraham. And so that Abraham never has a fear of, well, if I mess up, I'll I'll never get this. God is saying, it doesn't really matter if you mess up. I am going to bring it about. Why? Because it's part of God's creative purpose in the world to create through Abram and through Israel. And so God's going to do it no matter what. And we see that throughout Israel's history as well. They mess up big time and God's like, yeah, I'm going to punish you and I'm going to do this and that, but I'm still going to bring about my promise that I made to Abraham. Why? Because of, because I made it because I swore by myself. So I'm going to do it. And so this is a great thing where God says, I'm going to do this regardless. Whether you join me or not, this is going to be done. I'm going to accomplish it. And so, you know, the whole weird thing with the torch is basically just a representative of God going through these pieces of the, uh, the covenant. Now, if it's going to be through his own body, Abram's thinking in chapter 16 here, okay, well, Sarai can't have children. So, and, you know, she's kind of old. And so um, I'm going to maybe need someone else. So Sarai's like, hey, you know what? You can take my handmaid. This is a very common practice. Remember, polygamy is a thing. You can have concubines, all that sort of thing. Um, it's a very common practice, even to today in certain areas, whether Middle East or Africa, if oh, uh, the first wife cannot bear a child, often the second, there's a second wife that's taken to bear a child. So very common thing. In doing so, however, uh, there's a threat that's created, and there's actually numerous threats that's created. The first threat that is created is that when you take another wife, there tends to be a little bit of uh, a rivalry that goes on. And so uh, once Hagar actually conceives a child for Abraham, uh, Sarah becomes jealous. Obviously, I'm using their terms. God hasn't given them their names yet in this regard. But um, she becomes jealous, and she mistreats her horribly and beats her and all that sort of thing to where Hagar runs away. Now, here's the threat. It looks like, well, Abram's supposed to have these children, and yet Hagar now has run away. What's going to happen? God's not going to make this nation out of him. Well, God intercedes tells her to go back, but also promises her that her child will be made into a great nation as well. And he's going to bring about his promises through this as well. Um, and it's, it's through her running away that she receives this promise, by the way. She didn't receive any promise before this. So she runs away, and because she runs away, that's when the angel comes and she interacts with the angel and receives this covenant promise from God that that God will make her child into a great nation as well. That brings us to chapter 17. 17, again, is a reconfirmation of the covenant. So 17, and this is is usually the covenant that is read and with which we're most familiar. So 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the sovereign God, walk before me and be blameless. Then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will give you a multitude of descendants. There's that multiplying that we're talking about. 
Abram bowed down with his face to the ground and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be Abram. Instead, your name will be Abraham because I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And so what we've got here is uh, God promising Abraham that he's going to make him, again, the same thing. He's going to make him a mighty nation. Uh, He says to him that he's going to change his name. Now, I want you to notice on the name change, a lot of people say, well, Abraham means uh, a multitude of nations and Abram means exalted father. Actually, Abraham and Abram, like Avraham and Avram, mean the same thing. They're just two different ways of, one is derived from the other. They both mean exalted father. So why, why the name change? He's going to do this with Sarai too. Sarai means princess and Sarah means princess. Uh, Sarai might mean my princess or something of that nature, but either way, they essentially mean the same thing. What's the point of the name change? The point of the name change is to show that God is making Abraham something different than he was before. That is, God is going to actually work through Abraham in a new way um, to create through him. And so he gives him a new name. He gives Sarah a new name because they're not going to be the same people they were before if God had not decided I'm specifically going to work through you. Abraham itself sounds like Avhamon. And this is typical in Genesis to where Avhamon... Uh, Avhamon, Avraham, Avhamon, Avraham. It's not derived from Avhamon. It sounds like it. Avhamon meaning the father of multitudes. And Genesis does this a lot. If you think in terms of the way a junior high kid might take your name, like someone named Fanny and calls her Fatty or something, obviously Fatty is not derived from Fanny, but you can kind of take it from it as a play on words. Genesis does this a lot to say, Look, a lot of things were derived that way. Babel, Belel. Babel and Belel are not the same words, but Belel means confusion, and it sounds like Babel. So it's kind of like you know calling it Babel because it sounds like the word Belel or whatever. Um, same thing here. So Avraham and Avram mean the same thing. It's exalted father, but the name changes to show this newfound um, role that Abraham is going to take in the covenant of God, that the co- covenant in the covenant that God has been promising him, that is to make him an instrument of creation, which is ultimately, we know, the function of the image of God. <clears throat> so then God said to Abram, as for you, sorry, I, I skipped over there. Um, no longer will your name be Abram. Instead, your name will be Abraham because I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Now notice, I'll make you a, a father of a multitude, a multitude of nations, multiplying, f- extremely fruitful. And this is the blessing. So he's blessing Abraham, making him fruitful and multiply. He's going to repeat this with Isaac and Jacob as well, making them fruitful and multiplying, because that's God saying, I'm going to now use you guys as my instruments of creation. Not necessarily humanity in general. Humanity will be affected through you. So if I'm going to use humanity in general, it's going to be through you guys from now on. My, my program of salvation, my program of creation will be through you, Abraham, and ultimately we know through Isaac, Jacob, through Israel. 
And so it's not going to be the world in general. God's not going to save the world by just, you know, talking to humans in general and appearing to them in their own religions and whatnot. No, it's going to be through this one man, Abraham, and through the one line of Isaac and Jacob, who is renamed Israel. Um, It's going to be through them that salvation will come to the world and therefore the world will be blessed. So it will, uh, I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. It will extend to your descendants after you throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give the whole land of Canaan, the land where you are now residing to you and your descendants after you as a permanent or olam, an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep the covenantal requirement I am imposing on you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And so the requirement, of course, is that Abraham circumcises himself, circumcises his children, circumcises all his servants, everything as a as a uh, a fruit of the fact, a, a sign showing that he is God's person. And I've, I've commented before it's circumcision, the removal of the foreskin from the penis. Why? Because it's a sexual thing that God is uh, confirming with Abraham, that he's going to make him fruitful and multiply. He's going to make him have children. And so what is consecrated, the actual sexual organ is consecrated in the male of these people because why? They're the image of God to show that they are actually dedicated to God for this purpose. And so, again, very important to understand and all the connections of the story back to the original uh, chapters in the book. So uh, Abraham, of course, does this. He does it with Ishmael, all the servants and everything as a result of, of God calling him to do it. Now, I forgot to mention that we are not going to do chapters 18 and 19 today. I, I, 18 and 19 are important. They're in the middle of all of these covenants God is making with Abram for a reason. Uh, but I want to save that as a separate thing. It'll just be too much for us to do today. But we'll bring out how they're connected and whatnot uh, next week. So ultimately, we're going to jump from 17 over to chapter 20. So chapter 20, Abram of, Abraham, of course, gets into the same mess he got in before. Again, he's trying to help God out by making sure that he doesn't die. So they're among Abimelech this time. And the exact same thing happens. He's afraid that they're going to kill him and marry Sarah. And so he just tells everybody that she's his sister. Notice these half-truths. Just like the devil in the beginning gave a half-truth to the people, Abram gives a half-truth. Because Sarah, Sarah actually is his half-sister. It is true to say that Sarah's his sister. He's just not giving, her the, giving them the full truth, which ends up being deception. And so you see that it doesn't matter. You can give half a truth and it's still a lie. Um, But the same thing happens. So the same thing occurs, and through it, even though Abraham creates this this issue of chaos by doing this, by trying to help, uh, the idea that where God's is like, yeah, stop helping. Uh, You're getting in the way. But, of course, God uses the chaos that he creates to make Abraham richer, to actually bring about the promises that God gave to Abraham. So Abimelech ends up giving him money and all of that sort of thing. Um, finally in 21, we have the birth of Isaac. So God promised that it's going to be through Sarah. Of course, we kind of missed that. We'll go back to it in 18 to 19, but, um, but he promised to Sarah that he was going to bring about the, the promise that he gave to Abraham. Of course, Abraham laughs, 
Sarah laughs at God. Uh, it's silly. They're so old. It's impossible. But again, this is about showing that God brings about the children, not the human beings. It's not the machines, the mechanism of humans that just bring it about naturally. It's Birth is not a natural thing. God is doing it. We see that also in the, the Abimelech episode that God strikes the house of Abimelech because none of his wives can give birth. It says that God closes their wombs. And so as a result, once Abimelech gives Sarah up, God opens their wombs again. And so it's God who actually has control of this, and that's the point. So Sarah then in chapter 21 does give birth to Isaac. She conceives, she gives birth to Isaac. But of course now as Isaac grows, you have Ishmael there. There's a rivalry again. Here's another threat. Ishmael could supplant Isaac. Uh, what's going to happen? So Sarah decides, well, you know, I'm, I, I want to send her away. And Abraham says, yeah, well, I, I don't know. And God says, yeah, go ahead and send her away. That's fine. Uh, you can divorce her um, in this instance or whatever. She's a second wife. Send her away and, and Ishmael with her. And while they're out, of course, it looks like they're going to die because they're, the, they're in the middle of the desert. Doesn't look like they're going to survive. And uh, God sends an angel to, to uh, again, another angel to meet them and give them water. But in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of the threat, because again, God has promised that He'll make Abraham many nations, not just one. In in the course of this whole thing, he'll I'll make you uh you know some of of numerous kings and and nations and whatnot. Well, Ishmael's a part of that. This looks like it's being threatened because they're they're going to die in the wilderness. Well, he sends this angel. They get water, and through it, then you get a confirmation again of the promise. I'm going to make him uh uh the head of uh, a mighty nation. And in fact, 12 princes are going to come from him, just like you have 12 come from uh, Israel, from, from Jacob. And so God brings about his promise through the threat, and he removes the threat from uh, Isaac, which because Ishmael could in fact supplant him and take all of Abraham's stuff and his inheritance and whatnot. And the promise therefore would not be through Isaac. Finally, what you have is you have this huge threat that God himself creates in chapter 22. Now, you'll have another threat after this we'll talk about, but the major threat is in chapter 22 because God says to Abram, bring your son, your only son, to the place that I tell you, mimicking the original command that you're going to go to the place that I show you. Uh, Now, bring your son to the place that I tell you and basically offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, God has told Abraham that I'm going to bring about this promise through Isaac. And now he's telling Abraham to kill him. And, of course, we see later in the writer of Hebrews, we'll talk about, well, Abraham must have some trust in God that maybe he'll raise him from the dead. Like, who knows? But Abraham just has absolute trust in God that at this point, finally, Abraham has decided to trust God. Uh, He no longer has to secure it himself. And so he does what God says. Of course, we all know the story. He's about to kill Isaac on the altar, um, but God supplies a ram instead, tells him, stop, I don't want you to do that. Uh, I I know now that you fear God, and so go ahead and uh, put the ram up there. Um, But notice how the, again, after this, God gives him a reconfirmation of the promise so that in uh, verse 15 of chapter 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, I solemnly swear by my own name 
decrees the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be as countless as the stars in the sky or the grains of the sand. So he reiterates promises and things that he said earlier. Your descendants will take possession, your seed will take possession of the strongholds of their enemies because you have obeyed me. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your seed. So now this is a fascinating uh, chapter here because now we have God say, I'm going to confirm everything I've said and I'm absolutely going to bring about the ultimately the blessing of the entire world through your seed. And then we also have a mimicking. And look, I think this is typological, right? We have Abraham offering his only son. And that's, that's emphatic in the Hebrew, your son, your only son. And God does not withhold his son, his only son, uh, to bring about this blessing, the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. And so you have that mimicked here. But you also have the idea that God himself, even if he creates a threat, to what he's said, will work it out to where he it will ultimately be a blessing. And because Abraham has obeyed, of course, he's going to do all this through Abraham. Abraham will get to partake in this creational uh, activity that God has brought about. Um, but this is a fascinating chapter because it, it just shows that uh, God is not merely... Um, promising stuff to Abraham that he's not going to bring about. But remember, God's going to do it himself. And yet Abraham's obedience to God plays some sort of role. We, we understand that it's God initiating it, but plays some sort of role in God confirming that, yes, the promise is going to be applied to you. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to do this thing no matter what, but the promise now will be applied to you and to your seed and really to the whole world. And it's expanded to mean the whole world here instead of just the families of the land. And so God uses the chaos in order to create the blessing and the order of creation through Abraham that he wants to make. And again, we see then that this is God now completing what he began in chapter 1 of Genesis through Abraham and through what uh, he calls Abraham to do and through the chaos itself that is created. Well, we get to verse 23, and our chapter 23, and unfortunately, Sarah dies. More chaos. But Abraham needs to bury her. And so through the death of Sarah, the chaos, the horribleness of death of his beloved wife, God gives him more land. He gives him the land. He brings about the promise. He has to purchase this cave uh, for, to bury her, and it becomes his cave. Now, there's this interesting scene that goes on to where the cave is going to be given to him. And he says, no, 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 no. I, I need to buy it. It needs to be mine. So no one can say that they gave this to me. And so he, he acquires it legitimately, showing that he has possession of the land legitimately. It's his land. And this is going to happen again. There's going to be a threat to where they make a bunch of wells. And, and this, this well is being uh, confiscated by other people in, in Abimelech's whole uh, regime. And uh, there's this whole dispute that goes on, but ultimately he will acquire the, the well and because he dug it. And so wherever the well is, the land is his as well. So you see that God, through all these things, through the threats, through the chaos, 
God is bringing about his promises. <clears throat> now, what's the point? Well, as if you remember, the larger point of Genesis is that God is continuing to create. We're in the middle of creation. We're not at the end of it. So that chaos exists, not because it's just a fluke, not because, oh no, something happened that God didn't mean to happen, but because God works not only through the good and order that is done in the world, but also does good through the chaos and evil that is done. That's the point. That nothing thwarts God's good plan to create and to finish his creation so that he continues to create through not just order, but also chaos. And he brings about order through both because he's God and we're not. Because he's God and Abraham isn't. Abraham creates more chaos when he tries to play God. Only God can play God. And that means, look, that ties in not only to the larger theology and what God does in the historic redemptive theme, but also to the ethics of Genesis, that when you play God, you don't make a very good God. Now apply that to the sexual ethic that we've been learning throughout Genesis, to be creational in your sexuality, and not decide, well, I'll decide when I have children, because I know when's best. <coughs> no, you don't know. Because you're not God, and you're going to mess stuff up. Stop playing God. And submit finally, like Abraham does, realizing God knows what he's doing. God can actually do that. He can actually bring about, he can actually control order and chaos, and we can't. And so this sexual ethic is connected. Now, if you notice throughout Genesis and throughout these chapters, we've seen a lot of this, you're going to have a sub-argument made that not only, you know, even though technically some sexual relationships can be creational. They also provide a threat to chaos, which is why ultimately God doesn't like them, and eventually they're going to be ruled out by the time we get to the New Testament. And you can you can look at that one polygamy. So you have that with Hagar and uh, Sarah. You're going to have it again brought up, of course, with Rachel and Leah. Um, polygamy creates rivalries. It, it threatens the children. So ultimately, it's not really preservational. It should be done away with. Divorce, so him sending Hagar away, it almost kills them. Uh, he almost ends his line there through Ishmael. Uh, divorce threatens the lives of, of the woman who is sent away and, and the children, of course, as well. Um, uh, incest. Uh, so with Sarah, even though she's Abraham's half-sister, you're not actually to marry in the Levitical law later on. You're not to marry your half-sister and you can see that that may be what creates the problem in terms of that she can't have children and God has to supernaturally do something through her. And so incest creates a problem as well. <clears throat> now, later in the book, we're going to see uh, forceful sexuality that we would call rape um, is uh, wicked and it deserves the death penalty. And, uh, and uh, there's other things that are going to be mentioned throughout as well. Of course, there's going to be uh, the, the not fulfilling the leveret marriage thing that's going to be anti-creational, <clears throat> um, spilling seed on the ground, which will be met with the immediate destruction, uh, homosexuality that will be met with immediate destruction, because those are, those are flat-out anti-creational. But even the things that God tolerates, they're not things that God likes. Prostitution, we'll see later in Genesis. All of these things kind of threaten 
not directly as like homosexuality or spilling the seed on the ground, but they still are not fully as creational. So Genesis gives a kind of puts a bad light on these things ethically. <clears throat> well, the final threat that we see in the whole thing is uh, Abraham needs a wife for Isaac. And if Isaac were to marry a Canaanite woman, that might mean that his children wouldn't be covenant children. It might mean that the Canaanites own the land eventually. And so he says, no, 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 no. This is a threat to the promise. And so he sends his servant basically to his family. Uh, and he, he gets, of course, Rebecca from, from uh, well, really we see Laban. So maybe the father is dead and, <coughs> and Laban is the one taking care of her, her brother. So he, he, he receives Rebecca, and so that in the chaos of not having anyone to marry, he ends up having this, that it causes Abraham to send him away, and then he gets a wife for his son, and therefore order is created through it. <coughs> so again, order is created through chaos, and that's God's way of doing it. We can join with God when we can see it, but ultimately we should not try to be God in that whole thing. And God is able to do it because he's the creator. And so we understand evil exists in the world because God is still using it. God can use it. It's not for us to do because we can't use it. We can't choose uh, when we can turn chaos into order. So we are just to submit to God as his images and to uh, follow him in our sexuality, in our hospitality, and everything we're going to do in this, these chapters. And we'll mention hospitality next week when we go over 18 and 19. But we are to follow God ethically. So the theology then creates in us the understanding ethically that we subject ourselves to God. We don't become God ourselves. We don't decide those things for ourselves. We simply say, well, God has wanted us to use our sexuality this way. God wants us to be creational in this way. Therefore, it's not up for me to decide. I don't need to pray about it. I have the word of God telling me already what's true and what I should be doing. I have it teaching me the right theology so that I respond to it correctly. And I have an understanding that God will work those things out. I may be afraid, but yeah, there's lots of threats that, that would cause fear. We know that God works through chaos, though, and we know that God will do what's right by us. We merely need to obey him. We need, merely need to follow him and say, okay, well, you've made this promise you are the creator. You're the one blessing. You're the one making fruitful and multiplying. You're the one who's going to bring about uh, the prosperity of the earth. You're the one who's going to bring about the salvation of the many. I'm going to trust in you. I'm no longer going to take the role as God and try to be you. So I realize that's a lot to go over. It was a lot for me to try to explain. Read through these chapters, chapters 12 through 25, 18. And, uh, and see these things. I think it's, it's, it, there's a lot of other stuff we didn't cover, obviously. I mean, there's stuff like, uh, you know, the fact that there were Canaanites in the land and how you date the book. But again, I don't want to draw us away onto smaller issues. We can talk about those, you know, on Jitsi. But I, I, I don't want to get drawn away to smaller issues. I want to look at the big picture, the foundational issues of the work of God in salvation the theology we are to understand of what God is doing in the world and who he is and the ethics and how we respond to what God has done and the theology of who God is and what he is doing. So that's it in a gist. And uh, let's go ahead and end now in a word of prayer. 
Father, again, we thank you for your awesome word. I pray that you stir your people up to read now through these chapters in light of what we've talked about. We thank you for your promise. Ultimately, this is a promise not only to Abraham, it is a promise to us. We have been saved because of this. You have brought about salvation to the whole world through him, through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray now, Lord, as we see the beginning of your work, that we will think now toward the end of your work, and that you ultimately will give the land, the Eretz, the entire world, to all those who are in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Lord, we thank you for your awesome work, and we glorify your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.